Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. Today, is Amazon bad for America? We talk through one topic that the political left and right might actually agree on. And then we move the argument a little to the right. Ross interviews a pro-Trump conservative about whether Donald Trump has been good for the Republican Party. I mean, you would agree that he plays on bigotries, right? And finally, a recommendation. What I really am after in middle age is the feeling you've gotten like hours after you've smoked pop. Amazon has just spent more than a year conducting a very public competition to select a second headquarters city to go along with Seattle. Amazon expected to announce its new headquarters as soon as today. Cities across North America raced to see who could come up with the most enticing offer. But in the end, it selected two cities where it's going to put a bunch more jobs, and it picked the two most obvious ones of all, the metro areas of Washington, D.C., and New York. Amazon's move to Long Island City comes with some big promises. But not everyone there wants Amazon as a new neighbor. Ross, why don't you go first here? Tell us how you feel about this whole Amazon competition. Sure. I mean, I'm just rad. I'm I'm become radicalized, basically. I think it's time to break up Amazon, break up Silicon Valley, frog march their employees into the heartland and, you know, build shining new factories in Cleveland and Detroit and um, have a kind of a kind of five-year plan, if you will. I'm getting in touch with my inner Marxist, I think. That's how bad this process no, was? No, I mean, look, I'm, 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 obviously, I'm obviously exaggerating, but I think the process has been particularly offensive in a certain way. I think it's offensive for this company run by the richest man in America that has extraordinary influence and reach and power to claim effectively that it's opening up this competition that any American can, city can sort of enter and to sort of set off a bidding war where the various struggling cities of the American heartland can pour effort into some sort of bid that will then be presented to Amazon that's just used, one, as sort of information to feed into the maw of Amazon's corporate profit maximization machine and also to be used to bid up and up and up the amount of money that the two most obvious candidates would ultimately shell out for the privilege of having Amazon come and build new facilities there. And I think it contributes to this larger internet era trend where when the internet era started, everybody said, look, um, you know, thanks to the internet, people can now work from anywhere and we can have companies and jobs spread out all over the country and people can telecommute from Iowa and Arkansas and 
Instead, the exact opposite has happened. We've had this incredible consolidation of jobs and well-educated people and corporate wealth and influence in a very few cities. And this whole ridiculous process just serves to highlight that that trend is only seems to be accelerating. So, Michelle, do we actually all agree on this? So not only do I agree, but I actually sort of feel like we can almost use a neoliberal shill on this show because it's so hard for me to even see what an affirmative case for this would look like. I feel like you're baiting me, Michelle, into playing the role of neoliberal shill, which I've definitely been accused <laughs> of being Attack, attacked from left and right alike. David. So let me try. Even if there's a lot about this deal that you don't like. The way our capitalist system works is that we think it's best to have companies maximize their profits and do what's best for them. And it is best for Amazon to figure out uh, exactly where the ideal place would be for it to locate its employees. I get that. The part I don't get is what the is the politicians who have all become part of this sh- charade and particularly the politicians in New York City who I think have betrayed a lot of their constituents. I think the case for the politicians is a – it's a similar self-interest case. The argument for the politicians is basically it's been really good for Washington, D.C. and New York City that we have this incredible trend towards the agglomeration of capital and wealth in a few major metropolitan areas. It's basically a statement of sort of raw urban power against other cities. I I honestly don't understand what is the – progressive argument for being a party to this deal. I mean, the progressive argument is that it's going to bring a lot of good jobs to Queens and to New York. And one of the ways, arguably the single best way to help people's living standards is to bring good jobs in. And Ross, to put you on the spot, if you find this so odious and you think that companies can't help themselves but do things like this and localities can't help themselves, shouldn't there be a federal law, changes in the tax code, a set of things that basically says, hey, we don't want companies going out and saying, give us bids for your taxpayer dollars and we don't want uh, localities doing that because if you don't have a federal law, you're signing up for a lot more grubby searches like this one. I mean, I guess my view is that the normal grubby search process is not that big a deal. It's sort of part of how American capitalism works. It's something that I think principled people on the right and the left both dislike because it looks like crony capitalism to conservatives and libertarians and it just looks like corruption to the left. I think the problem is more specific to this particular consolidation of corporate power and urban power sort of working together that is skewing the entire American economy towards a few companies and a few big cities. And there, I think I'm more open than I would have been five years ago to the idea that there's an antitrust case against Silicon Valley. So in that sense, I think I'm where a small but growing number of conservatives are looking looking at these issues and saying, well, maybe this is the kind of situation where antitrust in some form could be a good thing. And I think that's obviously a change on the right, but it's something that's real and it's something that this power play by Amazon, I think, is going to contribute to. Michelle, how do you think about these huge tech companies? I think they're bad. You do. (laughs) I mean, basically, you know, I mean, to back up for one second, I think 
one complication with an antitrust action against Amazon is the way it's been politicized by the Trump administration, right? So Trump has been threatening an antitrust investigation against Amazon as punishment for the Washington Post, which is owned by the founder of Amazon, Jeff Bezos. He's been threatening an antitrust investigation to punish Bezos for the Washington Post writing bad things about him. And so that to me, is a very corrupt use of antitrust, and it's corrupt all of the various ways that Trump has talked about using mechanisms of the federal government against Amazon. Although, I actually think that there is a good non-corrupt case for using a lot of the mechanisms of the federal government against Amazon, against Facebook, against a lot of these overweening tech companies. And I, I don't understand, I don't know exactly what the right interventions are, but it's extraordinarily dangerous that these callow young men who appear to spend very, very little time thinking through the social implications of their tinkering, you know, are basically getting to remake the world that we all live in. I've changed my own thinking on this. I mean, my thinking is less neoliberal than it used to be. I I mean, I've spent most of the last 20 years reporting and writing about the economy. And I've thought about how education uh, has played a role in inequality and how tax policy has and how globalization and technology have. And I've realized over the last couple of years that I did not pay enough attention to this topic of corporate consolidation. And we see it in industries where there have been mergers. And then we see it in tech where huge, new, massive companies have sprung up. And they're so powerful, they can hold down wages. They're so powerful, they can get the government policy they want. And I'm convinced they're so powerful, they will eventually be able to raise prices, even if we haven't seen that quite yet. I mean, I think to me, it's like a Teddy Roosevelt situation where it's some point, we have to figure out ways to bust up some of these or put restrictions on the kinds of business they can go into. I guess what I'm struck by is that even as we have this agreement on their economic dangers across right and left, it feels to me that the cultural critiques you hear from the right and left are very different, that both the left and the right feel as if Silicon Valley is bad for their side. Those of us on the left look at the 2016 election. We look at how these companies spread hate. And my sense, Ross, is that you actually have a very different cultural critique that can't actually be consistent with our cultural critique of Silicon Valley. Yeah, I'm not sure if it can, because basically, right, the, the left looks at Facebook especially and social media generally and sees it as this place where the populist right has sort of run wild and is, you know, spreading extremist messages, spreading disinformation and generally sort of undermining liberal democracy, the liberal consensus and so on. But then I think social and cultural conservatives especially look at these companies and say, okay, but what happens if the liberal critique wins out sufficiently to encourage Facebook and Twitter and so on to crack down on right-wing extremism. Well, then you have a situation where the most powerful dominant media platforms have this extreme power over debate and are using it to decide who counts as a right-wing extremist and who doesn't. And by the way, they're run by people who are primarily socially and culturally liberal. There are very, very few religious conservatives of any kind in Silicon Valley. 
And so I think the conservative fear is that ultimately these are mechanisms for liberal cultural censorship that haven't been sort of activated completely, but will be activated eventually. So those are very different. But I think they, what they have in common is a fear of this extraordinary cultural power in the hands of a few somewhat callow people in Northern California that could be used to sort of foment extremism or could be used for censorship. But either way, the problem is there's just too much power there. I think that you see from the reaction to this process a lot of discomfort and anger. And yet you also have in Amazon a company that is extremely popular. I mean, they have great customer service. There will probably be an Amazon box on my porch when I get home today. They are the second most trusted institution in America after the military. And so I guess my question is, how do we get to a point where it is feasible that we could have a federal government, be it a Republican or Democratic administration, that actually starts to crack down on these levels of corporate power that all three of us are alarmed by? I can see a point where you get on the right some real energy around this issue. It's obvious that most right-wing politics in the U.S. right now is driven more by cultural than economic forces in many ways. But I think that actually creates an opportunity for would-be critics of Silicon Valley to sort of use the cultural disconnect, the anxiety that especially religious and social and cultural conservatives feel about these companies having so much power and use it to do something like what Josh Hawley, who was just elected to the Senate from Missouri, was doing as Missouri's attorney general, where he was scrutinizing whether Google was falling afoul of Missouri's antitrust laws. That didn't seem to hurt him running as a Republican against Claire McCaskill. He won that seat. He's now in the Senate. And having something like that happen means that people on the left who who would like, I think, a right that's interested in these issues might have to accept that it would come along with a certain kind of cultural resentment, right? I could imagine some sort of left-right fusion in an attack on, say, Facebook, as long as it wasn't premised on this return of the fairness doctrine. I mean, one of the great ironies of this moment is the way conservatives who have been running against the idea of the fairness doctrine, which was this doctrine that used to exist until it was scrapped during the Reagan administration, that there had to be political balance on the public airwaves. And conservatives have been fear-mongering for decades, really, that liberals wanted to bring back the fairness doctrine and, you know, kind of shut up Rush Limbaugh and end conservative dominance of of talk radio. And after all that, they have kind of very quickly decided that, like, maybe we need a fairness doctrine for social media because they feel like they're being discriminated against. And, you know, that's right. not going to go, and, right, and I, I think, go anywhere. I, I think the way a reasonable attack on the concentration of power in Silicon Valley fails is it fails if the left feels too much cultural affinity for these institutions and just wants to defend them against conservative attacks, which I think is a very powerful force for a lot of sort of casually liberal people who like Amazon, right? Amazon is much is more popular among liberals than conservatives. So it fails that way. But it also fails if 
the right particularly spends all its time trying to sort of work the refs and make you know make sure Facebook isn't being unfair to conservatives when what probably the right should be doing instead is just looking at weakening Facebook overall. I think we can end on a note of optimism here, which is yes, these companies are popular. Yes, we all use them. No, this isn't going to change through some boycott in which people decide to stop using Google or Amazon. But I think you see among a lot of people who may eventually be in policymaking roles, people who are in Congress and on congressional staffs, people in think tanks, even insignificant journalists like us, a growing recognition of the problem of corporate bigness. And I basically have no hope for serious policymaking from the Trump administration. But whether it's from a Democratic administration or a future Republican administration, I really could see a kind of crackdown in an economic way on these companies, the ability to start breaking them up, the kind of things that that happened with Microsoft and AT&T in the past. And I think if it happened under a Democratic administration, you wouldn't necessarily see all Republicans immediately saying that it was evil and vice versa. I really do think the rise of mega corporations, many of them in technology, is a darker development than many of us have realized. Okay, let's leave it there. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in a minute. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. We are back and we are going to try something new now. Ross sat down with a Trump sympathetic conservative to have a debate about the president and his effect on the Republican Party. Ross, tell us a little bit about what we're going to hear. We're going to hear me talking to Dan McCarthy, who is the editor of Modern Age, a very smart conservative journal of ideas. Um, and Dan and I have actually similar views on a lot of subjects. Um, but as regular listeners know, I'm pretty skeptical of Donald Trump. And Dan tends to be a lot more favorably disposed towards both the president and also generally what he means for the Republican Party. So we're going to get into that, talk about it and debate it a little bit. Dan, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Ross. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Uh, so you've written a couple of pieces for the Times op-ed page recently, uh, one before and one after the midterms. And I want to talk a little bit about the first one, which made an argument that basically, as a candidate and now as president, Donald Trump has given the Republican Party what it really needs. What Mr. Trump has done, you wrote, is to rediscover the formula that made the landslide Republican Electoral College victories of the Nixon and Reagan years possible. So tell me, what is that formula? 
Well, you know, I mean, Trump has made uh, American greatness one of his themes. He's uh, talked about a variety of issues that most conservatives or many conservatives uh, until recently had thought were perhaps not their issues, uh, things like trade, for example. And of course, he's raised the salience of things like immigration. All of this sounds to some uh, conservatives who have an older perspective on things as if it's a break from what uh, conservatism has traditionally been doing over the past uh, generation or so. And I argue that that's actually not the case, that in fact uh, what Donald Trump has done is to rediscover some of the uh, successful broad formulas and applications uh, that characterized the Nixon administration and the Reagan administration. And I think both of those administrations can also be characterized as being America first with respect to the great conflict of that time, which was the Cold War as opposed to globalization today. And now, of course, with uh, the People's Republic of China as a much greater economic pure competitor for us, um, we really have to think uh, much more strongly about uh, the kinds of economic nationalist measures we need to take. And I think that's what Donald Trump is doing. So, Dan, you came of age as a writer and a thinker, basically, as I did, during the George W. Bush presidency. And to me, it often seems like the most serious pro-Trump writers on the right are people whose worldviews were forged in opposition to the Bush presidency. So tell me about how you see the Bush years, the last big Republican presidency, basically, and how Trumpism relates to Bushism. Well, I think the Bush years were characterized by a degree of hubris. Um, Especially after 9-11, George W. Bush had the political capital to do almost anything. He spent that political capital, first of all, on the Iraq War, something that was not directly related to 9-11 itself, something that went kind of beyond simply a response to the attacks and instead became uh, a kind of democracy-promoting and nation-building agenda, uh, which was something that he had actually campaigned against in 2000. He had some ideas about uh, privatizing Social Security. He wanted to uh, basically create a guest workers program to welcome in uh, immigrants who would be doing uh, supposedly jobs that Americans didn't want to do. All of this added up to an agenda which I think the American people wound up being very displeased with, and an agenda which wound up not only being unsuccessful in terms of its long-range foreign policy, but also in domestic policy in terms of the economy. We got the Great Recession uh, after a few years of Bush. And um, so I think there was a need for a a swerve with respect to the Republican Party, where it really had to look at what had failed during the Bush years and what alternative policies might be adopted instead. So there, I think we basically agree, right? I I think we have a a pretty similar perspective. I think you're a little more hostile to the Bush presidency, and I see it as a little bit more of a presidency that had, you know, in certain ways, some of the same goals as the Trump administration, that some of it sort of ownership society stuff and um, even the steel tariffs that Bush imposed sort of resembled some of Trump's forays towards economic nationalism. But but we basically agree that the Iraq war above all, and that's that sort of hubris and utopianism made the Bush era ultimately a crashing failure for conservatives. Yeah, I, I think we do agree. And um, part of the question, though, is uh, with respect to economic policy, whether we simply want to alleviate some of the problems of the global capitalism that we've had for the last 25 plus years, or whether, in fact, there is a need to change our fundamental outlook on this and not simply to provide a little better for the people who've been left behind. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. So that's sort of our points of agreement. I think it's worth, though, talking about where we disagree, right? Because I think there are sort of two points I want to press you on after reading your commentary throughout this presidency, right? So the first question is, Trump is a disruptive figure on policy in certain ways. 
But I'm kind of skeptical about how meaningful the transformation really, really is. So, you know, Trump comes in and runs this campaign where he really clearly is an economic nationalist. But when it comes to actual governance, again, except for the tariffs, it's mostly been the kind of very standard Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell Republicanism of tax cuts for the rich plus sort of failed fairly misguided, in my view, attempts to repeal and replace Obamacare, right? So, I mean, can you make a case for Trump, the president, as a genuinely populist figure, as opposed to someone who just talked about populism in the campaign? I guess I would say a few things there. One is that uh, Trump has had to work with a uh, Republican Congress on Capitol Hill that is much slower to change uh, than the presidency is. So the presidency being simply one person, uh, if you get a radically different individual in there like Donald Trump, its personality as an institution can change pretty quickly. You're right that the rhetoric of the Trump administration uh, with respect to economic nationalism or national greatness has outstripped the policy initiatives. Uh, but that too, I think, is not necessarily unusual. I think the presidency is a strongly rhetorical office, and that it, one of its duties is actually to set out great themes, which then become the stuff that Congress can work upon, that think tanks and journalists and others can articulate. This is really the beginning, and I wouldn't, uh, you know, sort of expect to see a night and day difference right from the start here in the first, uh, you know, two years of his administration between what Trump can do and what Republicans in the past have done. I, I think you're giving presidents too little credit, though, Dan. Like, if, if you look at Reagan, yes, Reagan comes in and inherits a pre-existing political landscape that puts limits on what he can do. At the same time, though, on, you know, this, the signal idea of the Reagan era in many ways was the idea that Republicans shouldn't be the party that's just always figuring out how to balance the budget. They should have an affirmative economic program, which in Reagan's case was a dramatic program of tax cuts. And what I just don't see from Trump, you know, and this goes to sort of issues of his personality that we can talk about in a second, I think, but there's no sense from the beginning of his presidency that he ever had a plan or people around him who had a plan, except maybe briefly for Steve Bannon to say, come in and say, okay, Paul Ryan, I'm the president and you're not. So, you know, if you won't bring an infrastructure bill to the floor, I'm going to go on Fox News and, and tear you down, right? Trump would rather pick culture war fights on Twitter than actually use his power within the Republican Party, which is considerable, to force the party on some of these issues in a more populist direction, don't you think? Well, I agree with uh, some of the substance of what you're saying, but not necessarily the interpretation you put on it. Um, so you're right. I mean, Trump has not been the policy president in, in all respects that, uh, you know, his supporters would perhaps ideally like. Uh, but you can't make the, the perfect the enemy of the good. I mean, what Donald Trump has done is to actually get started and to actually pick a few fights and to challenge some orthodoxies in Washington, D.C. Uh, that alone is a signal achievement, and that alone is something that is indispensable, necessary, good, and will have long-term ramifications. Unless his presidency, though, is remembered as a failure, right? Because, I mean, Trump has taken a beating in the midst of the strongest economy since the late 1990s. And I mean, I just wonder if, from the point of view of people like you who are economic nationalists, isn't there a little anxiety that at the end of the day, people will say, oh, economic nationalism, that was just what <laughs> that lunatic Donald Trump wanted to do. And, and look, look, it was repudiated at the polls, so we don't need to try that again, right? Isn't there some danger there? 
No, I don't really think so. Um, you know, as far as things being repudiated at the polls goes, you know, we've seen the last four presidents in a row, all of them lose the House of Representatives at some point. Uh, so midterm defeats are something routine now. I think it's less of a wave, as people say, than it is a tide, simply because it's so regular. The question, however, about whether uh, a defeat, you know, of one kind or another, you know, maybe it's a 2020 election defeat, for example, in, uh, you know, Donald Trump's re-election campaign, is necessarily also a setback for the ideas, is, I think, mistaken. And, you know, you can point to Barry Goldwater uh, to make the other side of this case, right? Barry Goldwater lost in a massive landslide in 1964. My fellow Republicans, our cause is too great for any man to feel worthy of it. And the conventional wisdom was this totally discredits Goldwater-style conservatism. In fact, that proved not to be the case. Uh, 1964 was not the beginning of a resurgence and a renaissance of sort of Nelson Rockefeller Republicanism and moderate Republicanism. It, in fact, was the beginning of conservatives saying, wait a minute, uh, now we understand, you know, what we did wrong. We understand how to organize better. And we believe in our ideas very passionately. And we've had, uh, we've had leaders who can actually articulate this vision. I think that's what uh, you're, you're going to see with Trump, the Trump side. The, the other thing I want to press you on, right? Because I, I completely agree that the ballot box is not the only measure of political success. In a piece you wrote for The Spectator, which is a British political publication that now has an American arm, you wrote a piece called White Liberalism is Dying. And you basically argued that white liberals were a small elite out of touch with the rest of the country in various ways, out of touch with their own voters in many ways, and that there was no necessary reason, as much as white liberals assumed that there would be, that a multiracial, multicultural society had to be a left-wing society or had to be governed by white liberal meritocrats. And I, I thought those were tremendously strong points that were only weakened by the fact that the other political party, white conservatives, are even more out of touch with multiracial and multicultural conservative America and have, I, as far as I can see, no plan whatsoever from getting out from under the shadow cast by Trump's bigoted tendencies. And you think that's wrong. So tell me why that's wrong. Well, I do think it's wrong. I mean, if you look at the degree of support that Donald Trump commands among minorities, uh, both right now and also uh, in the 2016 election, uh, you know, two years ago, you'll see that he actually doesn't look all that much worse, uh, and in some cases actually looks better than what you saw for a kind of technocratic, a centrist Republican like Mitt Romney in 2012. There's a tendency for uh, progressives and even for a lot of conservatives who are in more highly educated circles to look at all of this and say, well, this style is intrinsically racist or this style is intrinsically a matter of playing upon bigotries. And obviously Trump, you know, crosses the line on, on many points. But the style itself I mean, you, is you, you not would, actually... You would agree, Dan, right? Dan, I mean, you would agree that he plays on bigotries, right? I mean, that's... That seems I think like he likes to push. That... No, I, I think he. I think he likes to push people's buttons. And whereas other people have a sort of internal check where they say, "Yes, we can push people's buttons, but don't push those buttons because those buttons are, you know, sort of out of uh, out of bounds." Playing are Donald... playing on bigotry. And look, I totally agree. There's there's a part of Donald Trump's appeal that people in our profession never really understood that has to do with his unfilteredness, has to do with his political incorrectness, right? But he's also doing stuff that's just race baiting. Right. Like the ad that he ran about the caravan and Mexican criminals coming into the U.S., it's just playing on racial fears. Right. Or when he talks about, you know, how how Democrats are planning to steal the election in urban areas and so on, that's just playing on white Republican fears of African-American corrupt politicians doing voter fraud. 
Well, I don't think vote stealing is a race as a category. So, you know, any Republican who's criticizing vote stealing or any Republican who's criticizing an illegal immigrant who comes over and kills a police officer, liberals in particular have, you know, sort of, they see all these things as purely sort of racial plays. I don't see it that way. I I look at, you know, Donald Trump running an advertisement, which, you know, my big problem with it in large part is that it was, you know, factually inaccurate, saying that the Democrats brought this guy over. But this was a guy who, you know, killed a police officer, was boasting about it. It's nasty politics, but I don't think it's you know, racial politics to the degree that progressives have have claimed it is. It's the idea that there may be criminality, the idea that there is, you know, some degree of risk to the either electoral system or to people's safety that conservatives are most concerned about. And Donald Trump is very adept at bringing out those fears and magnifying them. And I I do agree with you on that. Right. And he's magnifying them, though, in a way that is not on the evidence of his approval ratings and the outcome of the midterm election. And even for that matter, the outcome in 2016, when he had to win very, very narrowly in a series of of important electoral college states in order to win the presidency. None of this is delivering the 55 to 60 percent popular majorities that Republicans got under Nixon and under Reagan in the sort of analogies that your original piece cited for Trump. Trump is unpopular. He's not obviously more unpopular than Mitt Romney was among blacks and Latinos and Asians. But Mitt Romney was very, very, very unpopular among blacks and Latinos and Asians. And I guess my question for you is, how do you get from a politician who is seen by many people, not just white liberals, as a sort of deliberate racial polarizer, and who is only winning 40 to 45 percent support from the country? How do you sort of pivot from that to the Nixon or the Reagan who actually takes Trumpism and turns it into something that can unite the country. Is that possible? It is possible. I think um, Republicans can succeed if they actually get a new message and go after, uh, you know, groups, whether it's ethnic groups, whether it's geographic regions of the country, whether it's interest groups, ideologies, whatever the case may be, if they actually go to these groups with a message that really does connect that group with the idea of American greatness. And with the idea of the kind of country that, you know, populism or nationalism wants to create. But I think you can take this message to black Americans. You can look at the fact that, you know, black unemployment is at historic lows right now. You can look at the fact that one of the things that high degrees of immigration tend to do is to crowd out lower wage African-American workers, for example. You can take this message to people. You can also build bridges with the actual leaders in these communities, and you can start to have some results. And it's going to be slow. It's going to take time. You have to build trust before people people come around and support you. And Donald Trump sort of uh, gambled on these sort of industrial Midwestern workers in 2016. The gamble paid off. Well, let's end on this. Is there one thing that you're hopeful for in the next two years that you think Trump or Trump working with the Democrats might actually do? Well, you know, it's uh, I don't like to look into the crystal ball uh, simply because the last just, few just years have you, been so... Just, just you, Dan McCarthy. What do you want? What's in your heart? Look into your heart. I think there's very little chance, unfortunately, of the Trump administration and the Democrats working together. If if they could work together, I'd like it to be for the sake of finding policies that are good for American workers 
as a whole, and that would probably mean finding uh, ways to help the Trump administration uh, with respect to its tariffs and economic nationalism. Short of that, you know, there's the hope that um, perhaps you actually could get some worthwhile infrastructure that wasn't just the kind of spending spree that was ineffective that you got uh, with the, you know, the Obama administration. It's going to be a challenge to reach those uh, objectives. I think there's going to be a lot of tensions, obviously, between Trump and the Democrats. On that much, we completely agree. Dan McCarthy, thanks so much for joining me on The Argument. Thanks, Ross. Ross, Michelle, and I are now all back, and it is time for our weekly recommendation. Michelle, this week is your turn. What do you have for us? My recommendation is going to be the CBD gummies that I bought to get me through Election Day. Now, I'm at an age when I learn about new trends in illicit drugs from the New York Times style section, right? It's kind of shameful. But as you know, there's been a ton of reporting lately about this huge boon in CBD. CBD's popularity has risen. CBD is short for cannabidiol. CBD oil. CBD. CBD. CBD oil. The latest health trend that everybody is talking about. CBD oil. And so I was skeptical, right? Because whenever people, you know, hail a new wonder ingredient, you kind of assume it's bullshit. But I was in a bad place on Tuesday. And so I went into a herb shop that was in my neighborhood. You know, I said I'd been reading about CBD and asked if they had any and if they thought it could help me. And the woman sold me this $35 package of CBD gummy worms. And I took half of one and started to feel like sort of spaced out. Then took the other half during this like brief harrowing moment when the 538 model suddenly said that Democrats had only a two in five chance of taking the House. And what it did was make me really sleepy, right? So I had this dream, you know, based on all the hype that like my muscles were going to unclench and I was going to, you know, feel really relaxed and feel like, you know, like I'd just taken a long bath or something. It didn't really do any of that. But what it really did was sort of make me really tired. (laughs) And I feel like these candies are really doing the trick. By the way, they're illegal. So explain to me, what is removed from these specifically? Because my main question about this is, are we sure that the this isn't just pot? Yeah, I am. Because, you know, I was a huge pothead growing up. And now I'm at an age when, you know, smoking pot just makes me anxious. And what I really am after in middle age is the feeling you've gotten like hours after you've smoked pot where there's sort of, you're not high, there's nothing psychedelic going on, you just feel sort of tired and zoned out. And that's what this creates. So how different is it from a big glass of red wine? What I sometimes find if I drink too much red wine is that maybe it kind of helps you go to sleep, but then you wake up with your heart pounding at 2 a.m. And so, you know, we'll see, I'm like a week into my... CBD journey. Who knows if it's going to prove, you know, the sort of like lasting crutch I need to get through this dystopian period in American life. But so far, I found it really helpful. I feel like we have an official argument recommended diet emerging here. Juice, no, (laughs) seltzer and CBD gummies. Yes. 
Okay, thanks to all of you for listening. Whatever you think of CBD gummies, if you like what you hear, we would love it if you'd leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or call us with your thoughts and questions at 347-915-4324. That's 347-915-4324. We might even play you on the show. This week's show was produced by Alex Laughlin for Transmitter Media with help from Caitlin Pierce. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help, as we always do, from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, and Ian Prasad Philbrick. Our theme was composed by Allison Layton Brown. Special thanks this week to Kaiser Health News. Check out their podcast, What the Health? And we will see you all next week. Yeah, I played the latest episode for my family. And, uh, you know, they claim to like it, but you can't really trust them because they're seven and five years old. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost.